Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're continuing our study of Paul's letter to Timothy. And it's a powerful letter. We're seeing Paul writes really for a twofold reason. I'll remind you what that is. First of all, he instructs the church at Ephesus and he encourages Timothy to stand for Christ. First of all, he instructs the church at Ephesus. You've got to remember that he is, they're dealing with false teachers. He wants to talk about worship and leaders and elders and relationships within the body. But then he talks to, to Timothy and encourages him to stand for Christ and fulfill the ministry that he he has. We can apply so much from this letter, not only individually as we look at it and we think, okay, how can I apply these truths about standing for Christ, but also as a local church we can look at it and say, what are the things we need to do to make sure we're doing the things that the Bible says we're, for us to do. In this last section, really beginning about verse 6 all the way through verse 19, he's dealing with the subject of contentment and materialism and riches and, and that attitude. Now, as we study this morning, I think two things we're just going to sort of stand out. One, I'm going to give you just a quick review of the entire events. We saw a little bit of that last week. We'll do that. And then we'll see where Paul praises Jesus Christ. Often called the doxology or a doxology. And I'll tell you what, what a doxology is in just a minute. Most of you have heard of it. And if you think about it, we'll, we'll, we'll see it. He, he, we see how he describes Jesus Christ as the eternal king and the Lord and the invisible and immortal and the only God. And it's very powerful as we think about who God is and what he has done. Our goal is we gain from the study as we see God's perfect word as we see our great God and Savior and we see the truths that can change our lives. So there's a lot there. Well, when I was 14, there was a total eclipse of the sun. And it wasn't just one of those little partial deals, but I remember we got in the newspaper and the TV and everybody was talking about that, that, that in the middle of the day it would become dark. And of course that happened. I remember we all went outside and, and it was like one, I think it was two o'clock in the afternoon and it was almost like nighttime. And it was really exciting. They warned us. They said, do not look at the sun. Now, normally, you don't look at the sun. When you're driving in your car and you're driving in the sun, you're doing like this, you're not, you can't look at it. It's too bright. But on something like an eclipse, especially a total eclipse, you can actually look up there. But they said, don't do that because the rays of the sun are still so bright, still so powerful, you may not realize it, but it would blind you. They even had questions about, what if you get sunglasses? You know, some real powerful sunglasses. They said, don't even try that. And so I remember we went out and, and we didn't look up at the sun. You need to do like this. You know, you just glanced up the see sort of what it looked like, but even then it was, it was dangerous. I remember reading about a guy, and I think he was in the UK, that uh, looked at the sun the whole time and that did some great damage to his eyes. You know, when you think about the power of the sun, that light is so strong, but realize the light of the sun is nothing compared to the light of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the, the holy, righteous one. Paul, in this passage, describes Jesus as the one who dwells in unapproachable light. What exactly does that mean? Well, the light here is speaking of his holiness. First John, he is in light and, and there is no darkness. And Jesus said, I'm the light, I'm the way, the truth, and the, the life, and, and, and that he is the light of the world. He dwells in unapproachable approachable light. What does that mean? We're going to talk about it. And when when uh, Paul writes that, he breaks into what we call a doxology. Now, let me explain to you what doxology means. Some of you come from a church where you start the service and say, let's all stand and sing the doxology. That's what people used to do. And the doxology is a praise. It used to be praise God from whom all blessings flow. That was the name. That was the song that they sang. Well, doxology comes from two Greek words, doxa, which means glory, 
and and our praise, but glory, and then logos, which means words. So it's the words of glory, the words of praise, and that's why it's called a doxology. You're giving praise and glory to God. As as we look at this, in fact, that's what he does. He uh, praises and glorifies Jesus Christ in this passage, and we're going to see that he describes his position as the king, and he describes his character as the Holy One. So there's a lot there. As we study this passage, what, what I pray for is because a lot of you, you know, you're going to take exams tomorrow and the rest of the week, and then some of you will be gone for good. We're going to miss you terribly. Some of you are just gone for the summer. Some of you even get to stay here for the summer, and we love that. But what I hope is that as we look at this passage, that as you leave for the summer or for good or for whatever, you'll think about the glory and the majesty of, of our God. Because it just so happens as we're studying through this, and it's the time for, for exams and for the college students to leave, we're right here in this section. And we're going to really look this morning at verses 15 and 16 where he talks about who God is. Now, in this final section, I want to remind you that Paul is discussing contentment and materialism and desire for riches and how to deal with all this. And so if you go back to verse 16, Verse 6, all the way through verse 19, this all goes together. Let me remind you of some things that we have seen. First of all, we've seen that we must learn to be content. Paul said that godliness with great contentment is, is a great gain. And so we must learn to be content. It is not natural. Then he said, understand all that we have comes from God. That was, I believe that was about verse 7 or maybe verse 6 where he said all that we have comes from God. We realize that things are temporary. They're just to be used for his glory. Everything we have comes from God. Then the next verse said that we had needed to understand that all we need comes from God. So it's very powerful. Be content. Everything we have comes from God. Everything that we need comes from God. Then he gave two warnings in this passage. And the two warnings were, number one, not not have this desire to be rich and not love money. In fact, verse 9 says, but those who want to get rich, and he said, they fall into a temptation wanting more and more and more. There's a snare and a trap thinking that these things actually belong to them and that they end up loving loving things more than they love God. That is a danger in materialism. He then went on to say in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And what happens is when people love money, it pulls them away from God. The truth is you cannot love God and money at the same time time. You can't do it. So that's what he's been warning about. Then last week, we actually saw five things that he said to do so that you won't fall into materialism. And here's what he said. He said, flee it. He said, pursue righteousness. He said, fight the good fight. Remember, you're standing for Jesus Christ. Put on the armor of God. He said, grab hold of eternal life. And we explained it last week. Remember, when you trust Christ, you have eternal life. You have at that moment. When he says, grab hold of eternal life, he doesn't mean try to get it. He means live out your life as one who lives eternally. Look at things from the eternal perspective, not the temporal and then finally he said obey the commandment it was singular that's the last thing we're going to actually look at that one again this morning but he talked about living by the word of God so there's a lot there this morning three things stand out let me show you what they are one is we're going to see that last command again we're going to just review very quickly in time events and then we're going to see the doxology in which he praises God so there's a lot of great things there let me break down the passage for you first of all the command is in verse 13 and part of 14 very first part we'll see that we talked about it last week I just want to remind you what it is then in verses 14 the last part of 14 the first part of 15 he talks about the return of Christ I want to remind you of some end time events people are interested in end times people love it I just want to show you how they fit together and then most of the time we're going to look at the doxology which is the last part of 15 and 16 which he talks about Christ's position as the king and Christ's character as the holy one so there's a lot there now let's start look at verse 13 he starts off by saying saying, I charge you in the presence of God. I want to show you this on the screen, that first... 
The first part of 13 is the charge. Verse 14 is actually what the charge is. I charge you, keep the commandment. Notice, I charge you in the presence of God. Then he talks about God and Christ. And then in verse 14 he says that you keep the commandment. Now, what the bottom line is, there's singular, and the commandment is the idea of I want you to keep the word of God. He's put it all in one thing, and he's saying, I want you to live out the Scripture. He said, obey the Word, flee the, the, the materialism, pursue righteousness, all of those things. But bottom line, know and apply the Scripture. The key to the Christian life is living by the Word of God. We'll talk about this more a little bit later. But the truth is that Countryside, as you know, if you've come here for any length of time, we teach the Bible verse by verse, passage by passage, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Whenever we meet, we try to go through the Scripture. The point is it's the foundation for our life. You have to know the Word. The Word of God tells us things about our Savior and our lives and how we live and what we do. And so that is the bottom line. I'll give you more details a little bit more on the on this whole idea of, of where he says, keep the commandment. But notice back in verse 13 when he says, I charge you in the presence of God. He's talking about the Father. And he says, who gives life to all things. He says, God the Father is the one who gives life. He's the life giver. Then he mentions Christ. He says, Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. We saw this last week, and that's why we're not going into detail. But the good confession is the fact that he is the Messiah and the Savior, that he is the, the, the ever-living God who is the one who's going to die and pay for sin and be the Savior and the King of the world. So bottom line is he said, Father is the creator, the life giver, the Son is the redeemer. That's how he talked there. From that, he said, keep the commandment. Now, the commandment, as I said a while ago, was to live out the Bible, knowing and applying the Word of God. Let me tell you, with, with the Bible, you need to study it. You need to know it. You need to apply it. You need to memorize it. You need to be ready to give an answer to everyone for the hope that is within us. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharp and two-edged sword. The Word of God goes, goes to the heart of the issue, Isaiah 55, 11, and never comes back void. The Word of God is truth. The Word of God is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Word of God is the foundation for everything you do. You must know the Word of God. We talked about last week about different churches, and we say some churches don't use the Bible at all. Some churches talk about the Bible. Some churches teach the Bible. You want to go where the Bible is taught, not just talked about and not ignored. You want to go where the Word of God is taught, where you can understand it and apply it in your life. It is the foundation for everything that we do. Now, notice what he says, that you keep the commandment, that's the, the Word of God, without stain or reproach. He's basically saying, live a holy life. Now, then, notice what he says, and this is what's really amazing. He says that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we saw this verse last week, but I want to remind you of end-time events, okay? just want you to think through this most of you know this if you've ever been through my 2-2 study, we spend a whole time on that. I've taught end-time events. We've taught the book of Revelation. You can go to the website and download any of these messages and things dealing with end times. But let me remind you very quickly of how the end times fit together. There are two comings of Jesus Christ to the earth. The first time Jesus Christ came to the earth, he was born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 said he would be born there. He was born as the Son of God came into the world. The Word became flesh. He lived about 30, 33 years, 30 years, and then started a ministry as ministry was three, three and a half years. He died on the cross and paid for our sins. The first time Christ came to this earth, he came to die for our sins. There is a second time that Jesus Christ comes to the earth. Revelation 19, 11, he comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He comes down to this earth and he sets up a kingdom and he rules from Jerusalem for a thousand years as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's to the earth. So the first time to the earth, he came to die. The second time he comes to the earth, he comes to reign. In between those two comings, there is another time that Jesus comes 
heavens, but it is not to the earth. It is in the clouds. We call it the rapture because when he comes in the clouds, those who have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior will be taken off the face of the earth to meet him. First Thessalonians says, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the air. Thus will always be with the Lord. We call that the rapture. That is not a coming to the earth. That is coming to the clouds. So that rapture comes from a Latin word, rapio, which means snatching away. So the first, uh, let's see, uh, yeah, we already had that other slide. First time he came, he came to die. The second time he comes to be the king. In between, he comes in the clouds. Now let me show you this kind of on a chart, and that is this. Look at it this way. Here's the first coming over here on the left side. Jesus Christ comes. He comes to die on the cross, pay for sin. That little arrow coming up showing that he died and rose again, and he ascended back into heaven. That's the first coming to the earth. Over here, notice his second coming to the earth. He comes as the king of kings and the Lord of lords and sets up a kingdom that rules for a thousand years. In between the coming to the earth, first coming and second coming, he comes in the cloud we call rapture. That era going up is showing that we in the church age, we who have trusted in Christ, will be taken off the face of the earth and meet him in the in the air. So don't get them mixed up. Some people do, and they don't. They sometimes mix up rapture and second coming and those kind of things. First coming to die, second coming to reign. In between, he comes to get us. Now, on this chart, I show that after we're gone, we're the church age. Those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, if you have believed in Christ as Savior, the very next event is Christ coming in the clouds to get you. He will take us off the face of the earth. Following that on the earth will be a time called the tribulation. We're not going to detail at all. When the tribulation is over, Jesus Christ comes back as the king. We come with him, and he sets up the kingdom. So when, when Paul is telling Timothy, and when he says... Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling Timothy to be looking for the Lord, be living in such a way as you wait for Jesus Christ to come get us, the rapture. He's not talking about second coming. First coming's already happened. He's not talking about second coming. He's talking about the rapture as we look for the appearing. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy, we're looking for the glorious, Titus, looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He could come at any second. I just want you to understand that. He's saying, live a faithful life, live a holy life as you await for the coming of the Lord. Now, that's every one of us in this room. The same thing is true. We're the same as Timothy, in a sense, because he says, I want you to live a holy life as you await the return of Christ. And he could come at any second. There's nothing to be fulfilled. In fact, notice what this verse says. The very end of verse 14 says, uh, Without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. Which means in his own time. There are no dates, no signs for the return of Jesus Christ in the clouds. Now, a lot of times people say things like, Gee, I think, I think we're in the last days because of all the signs. There aren't any signs for the rapture. None whatsoever. It could happen this exact moment. There's nothing has to be fulfilled. For the second coming, there are a number of signs. There has to be wars and rumors of wars. There has to be a man of sin come to power. There has to be the tribulation on the earth. And there has to be the wars at the very end, especially a war that we call the Battle of Armageddon. All of those have to happen before Jesus Christ comes back the second time to the earth. But for us, the rapture, it could be any second. So it's so incredible. Now, with that in mind, and as Paul was thinking about the return of Christ, he actually just stops and begins to praise God. That's what he does. And this is what we call, he breaks into the doxology. Remember the Greek word doxa means to, to praise, 
our glory and logos, ogology, that part there. You put them together, doxology means the words about praise, the words of giving glory to God. There are two aspects of this. One we're going to see is position as king, that's the praise, and his character of holiness. Now what I hope is that as you leave for the summer of college students, that you look at these and you think, okay, I'm representing Jesus Christ. What's he really like? What do I want people to know? Uh, how am I supposed to live as I go through life and I think about who my Savior is? Well, in this passage, we're going to see his position as the king. We're going to see his character as the Holy One. And we'll see how that fits together. Let's look first at his position as the king. Notice what he says, <clears throat> verse 15, which he'll bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. Now, we're talking about his position, and as we look at this, we see him praising God. And Henderson, in his commentary, says, Every element in this doxology stresses the incomparable greatness of God. He says he's the blessed one. He is the blessed one. When, whenever you see blessing from man to God, it's always praising from God to man. It's always blessing. This one, he's, it's praising. He's basically saying he's the praised one. He is the blessed and only sovereign. Now, I want you to think about the word sovereign because sovereign means that he's in control, that he is the authority, that he is the ruler. He brings all things according to the counsel of his will. God is sovereign over all creation. All events are in his hand. He is the one who holds things in his hand. He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is no such thing as fate or chance or luck you can't say oh bad luck there is no bad luck there is no good luck there is no luck at all jesus christ controls all things and works all things according to the counsel of will there's no luck it's not something you walk out and you say oh bad luck i had a flat tire oh good luck i had it there is no luck god is working all things he is the sovereign ruler of all things he rules the heavens and the earth jesus said all the authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth in daniel chapter 4 verse 35 it says he does according to his will and no hand can stop him isaiah 49 verses 9 and 10 he says i will accomplish my good pleasure in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, he says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is no other one in control except Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign God. We can rest in the one who holds the future. We can rest in the one who loves us with an unconditional, everlasting love. That means all the events and everything that ever comes into our life, God allows these and he works them. Now, we have the privilege. He allows us to make choices, and we are accountable for every choice we make, and yet he's such a great God that they all fit in his sovereign, perfect plan. So the very first thing we see about God is he, he's sovereign. He's everything. He rules it all. And you don't have to be afraid as you go through life because your God controls all things. You're not at the mercy of fate or luck or chance or anything else. Your God holds you in his hand. And he loves you unconditionally. Notice what he goes on to say, though. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who he is. The King of kings, he rules over everything. The Lord of lords, all things are under his authority. Literally in the Greek it says the King of all the ones being King and the Lord of all the ones being lords. When he comes to this earth the second time, remember the drawing? When he comes the second time, he is coming as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will rule in righteousness and justice. The first time Jesus Christ came, he offered himself as king. They rejected him. He died on the cross to pay for our sin. The second time he comes as king of kings and Lord of lords, he's not asking anyone. 
He is the sovereign ruler, as Psalm 2 says. He comes with a rod of iron. There was a promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. David was promised that he would have a son, the greater son of David, who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. The greater son of David is Jesus Christ. There will be a time Jesus Christ comes to this earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he sits on the throne in Jerusalem forever and ever as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You may say, is he really coming? I want to show you this. Hold your place and turn to Revelation chapter 19. I want you to see him coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Just take just a second to turn over there, just a few pages toward the back of your Bible. Revelation chapter 19. We'll start at verse 11 when you get there, just a second. He is coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Look at Revelation 19. Look at verse 11. This is John, the guy who. Uh, this is the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, First, Second, and Third John, and the Book of Revelation. John sees this, and here's what he says: "And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he said on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges." And wages war. This is Jesus Christ coming. He's the one faithful and true. He's coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Notice what verse 12 says. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. You would not believe how many times you read a commentary or something. Somebody's trying to tell you what that name is. What does this verse say? It says nobody knows the name except him. Why would anybody try to figure it out? Right? Now, I want you to notice one thing in verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. In the Greek, there are two words for crowns. There's a word stephanos, Greek word which means a crown like a reward, like you won the race and we gave you a reward. There's a second word, diadem. It's a Greek word, and it means the crown like a king wears. This verse says he's coming with many crowns on his head. It may look funny. He's going to have a bunch of crowns on his head. You know what it's symbolic of? That he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he is ruling in righteousness and justice. Look down at verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. What is that name? King of kings and lord of lords. That's the same thing we saw in 1 Timothy. I want you to turn over to Revelation chapter 20. I want you to look at the very end of verse 4. Verse 4 is a long verse and it talks about people who were killed during the tribulation. But I want you to see at the very end, what does it say? It says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The thousand year reign of Christ is that millennial kingdom that I showed you on the chart. That's when Jesus comes back to the earth the second time, sets up a kingdom and rules for a thousand years. Look at Revelation 21, chapter 21, look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. I want you to understand that after the thousand years is over, God makes a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus Christ is still the king and he rules for all eternity and we rule and serve with him. So I want you to understand he indeed is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. He calls them the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. As you go out these doors, you don't have to be afraid of anything. You serve the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the living God who controls all things and works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's who we represent. That's who we live for. But there's more. Look at the second part, because the second part is his character, and he's holy. And look what he says. He says, who alone, this is verse 16, who alone possesses 
immortality. Immortality, the Greek word there, means can't die. It means deathless is what it literally means. It means eternality there. In fact, listen, it means that he's always existed. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. That's what he's talking about. Now let me, let me remind you of something. You have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. You have eternal life and you will live for all eternity with Jesus Christ. But you had a beginning. There was a time you didn't exist and God created you and formed you in your mother's womb and then you were born and then you trusted in Christ and now you have eternal life to live forever with, with Christ. But He is eternal. He is immortal. There's never been a time He didn't exist. He goes all the way back from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. I can comprehend a little bit of thinking that, okay, I'm going to live forever with Jesus. I'm just going to keep on going and keep on going. I cannot comprehend the other direction how He he never had a beginning. I can't think about how something never started. It just always existed. It's amazing. Revelation 1.8 calls him the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Revelation 1.17 says that, uh, that he is the, 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 the first and the last. Revelation 22.13 says Alpha, Omega, beginning and end, the, the, the last and the first. He's always existed and always will. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Always exists. He's immortal. We're going to live forever. We're not immortal in the same way that God is because He's always existed. That's beyond our comprehension. Now look at the next part. This is amazing. Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light unapproachable light. He di- this is dealing with His holiness. He is light. There is no darkness. The unapproachable light is that if you were to try to look at God, you would go like this. I, I can't look over there. It's just too bright. In fact, He says, unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Albert Barnes says, the light is where He dwells is so brilliant and dazzling that mortal eyes cannot endure it. The word dwells there means to be at home in unapproachable light. Exodus 13, 7, 17, God told Moses, no man can see me and live. Now, I want to ask you this question. If God dwells in unapproachable light that we can't look at him in that sense that it's so bright, so powerful, his holiness is so amazing, and that if God told Moses, no man can see me and live, will we ever see God? Can we see God? The answer is yes. How? We see God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the God-man, how He took flesh. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to this, John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son has revealed Him. In fact, the Greek word there means explained Him. The way we see God is when we see Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says Jesus is the exact representation of God. We really can't comprehend the glory and the power of the God who lives in unapproachable light that no man could see, has ever seen and can ever see, and yet in Jesus Christ we see Him. And so when we get with our Savior, we are seeing the living God. We're probably not going to see the Father or the Spirit in that sense because it's unapproachable light. God has revealed himself to us in his son Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have what? Seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are 
one. So it's so powerful. We, we can't understand all this, but we see the sovereign God as eternal power and glory. There's one other thing. And, and when, he, when he gets to this part, he gets to what we call the doxology, because what he's going to say is this, all honor and eternal dominion belong to Christ. Notice, he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who possesses immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He gets all the honor and the glory. He is the eternal, perfect, holy God. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the one who is to be honored. He is sovereign. He is creator. He is redeemer. He is savior. He is king. He is holy. He is the ruler. And when Paul starts to talk, he gets carried away. Just like we should be. We should be saying, you're the, you're the greatest. There's nothing like you. I can't even imagine how great you are. You're beyond what I could ask or imagine. How do you view God? As you leave for the summer, I want you to take with you that you represent the perfect, holy, righteous, sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords who works all things in your life. You don't have to be afraid of anything. You live for Christ. You stand for Him. You make a difference for Him because He is that one. And, and sometimes go back. Go back and maybe study this week or the next week after you get through the exams. Go back over these verses and, and look at who God is and say, God, you, 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 you are the one coming back. You are the sovereign ruler. You are the king. You are the Lord. You are. You live forever and ever and ever. And you've always existed. And you're, you're holy and righteous. And, and, and you deserve every honor. He is the sovereign ruler of all things, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the perfect holy God to whom belongs all glory and honor. What have we seen? The charge to obey the Bible. We've seen the charge to be holy as you wait for the return of Christ. We've seen his praise, his doxology as he praised the holy sovereign God. Let me give you two quick applications. The first one is this. Understand the end time events. I mean, take the time to understand it. Understand the two comings. The first coming of Christ to the earth. The second coming of Christ to the earth. First coming to die. Second coming to, to reign. Understand in between there's a coming in the clouds. It's not to the earth. It's called the rapture. It's us. We're taken off the face of the earth. Be able to put it together. And if you want more study, you can go online and there's places you can do that. You can get the 2-2 book. And we have, I think, four lessons on end time events that deal with how all this fits together. I hope and pray you understand it because uh, let me let me tell you one great thing for sure. Uh, if you read the book, we win. Okay, see if you read it carefully, we're the winners. So you don't have to worry. If you some people are so worried about end time events, listen, Jesus is gonna come get you, and we're gonna be out of here. And then He's gonna come back to the earth, and we're gonna rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. And then He's gonna create a new heaven and a new earth, and then we're gonna rule and reign with Him for all eternity. That's the plan. It's gonna be good. Now, if you serve him now, you'll have great places of responsibility then. If you don't serve him now, you won't have great places of responsibility then. That's why rewards are important. That's why living for Christ now is important. It has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. It has to do with where you serve for all eternity. So understand the end time events. Let me give you one more, and that is realize the power and the glory of God. Think about it. First of all, trust our sovereign king. He indeed is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's going to come and rule in righteousness. And so think about serving him now because you're going to serve him for all eternity. Serve him now. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Second is give honor to our holy God. I mean, think about who he is. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's the immortal God. He is the 
is the one who, who, who is, that, that we can't even see, never been seen or can see, only in Jesus Christ. May we live a life of holiness. May we give praise to our perfect, holy God and King as we look for His glorious appearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great morning. Thank you for these, these, the study. And Lord, I just pray for those who will be leaving. I just pray that they'll think about, first of all, they'll gain an understanding. They'll be confident about end time events. They'll know that. And then second, Lord, as we think about our Savior, that they'll realize who He is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they'll trust in Him in that way. And then they'll give honor and praise to the one who is perfect, holy, righteous God. Thank you, Lord, that we represent the living, holy, perfect God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.